Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Nika Kabiri, welcome to the show, Listening with Leaders. You are the founder of Your Next Decision, which can be found at yournextdecision.com. Thanks for taking out the time to talk with me and my audience. Thanks for having me. So uh, we were just talking before we got on. We both have uh, a, 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 a something very much in common in that, that we both teach decision-making. And uh, right. as I told you, I teach a graduate course at Pepperdine School of Law. Tell us about your work uh, as a decision-maker and a, and a student of decision-making and how you got into it. Yeah, so um, I've always been fascinated with decision-making from a personal perspective, simply because it was the only kind of self-help tool I could find um, that really worked. I think, you know, therapy didn't quite work for me when I was younger, not, you know, not in the best place I could have been in my life. And I just, you know, it occurred to me that making better choices would lead to better opportunities, better options, which would lead to better choices. And so I just basically learned through trial and error, how to decide myself out of a bad you know, some, my bad twenties, my really depressing twenties, and then ended up in graduate school at the university of Washington in sociology and was just so lucky to have been pulled under the wing of some of the top theorists in rational choice theory in sociology, which is really just the practice of taking economic models of decision-making and applying them to, to um, sociology or to explain sociological phenomenon. So we did a lot of work on like political movements and things like that. Um, so that was that sort of married the the academic, the really rigorous understanding of decision making with my personal passion uh, around really how decisions could or decision science. Not we make decisions all the time that lead us nowhere, but like the science of decision making can actually lead us someplace good. And um, and yeah, now so for the past fifteen or so twenty years, I've been working in business. Um, doing uh, quite a bit of research on consumer decision-making, consumer behavior. Um, and now I'm senior director of decision science at a legal tech company called Clio. And I also do a lot of writing on my website, yournextdecision.com. I did teach decision science at the University of Washington. I don't do that. Sorry, I don't do that anymore, but that's that's my story. Okay. Well, what is, yeah. it, make, what is it that makes you unique in your field? Oh, um, I think... It's the application of everything that I've learned to like my personal life, which sounds kind of squishy and kind of self-helpy. And, you know, I know a lot of folks in business maybe don't want to go there in a, in a business podcast, but, but there's something to be said about using yourself as a sort of guinea pig for your ideas or to like, um, to understand like really through living how decision science can actually improve your decision-making as opposed to just 
thinking about it theoretically or talking about it in terms of, you know, what the research says and, and all that. Um, but I found it's been really helpful in, especially in my company now, when I consult with people across the company on making better choices, um, that I can, I can really get to the heart of the problem on their level, as opposed to keeping it like, you know, lofty. So since since we're on it, and since I've got an audience of CEOs, I'm sure everybody yeah. wants to know how do I how do I improve my decision making, especially when I got over 200 cognitive biases I got to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like there's one bias that seems to be the kind of gateway, like or the gatekeeper, um, which is overconfidence bias. Like if you if you have, if you suffer from overconfidence bias, then you are really hopeless because you're never going to be able to see all the other biases that are right behind that gate. Right. Lake so, the Lake Wobegon effect. <laughs> kind of, yes. So, and, and it's really kind of tough to kind of overcome overconfidence bias, but the, the best way that I can think to do it is just to really walk around life all day. And this is why I my personal experiences are so important because I live this every day, just doubting yourself a little bit, like second guessing yourself, not your capability or your intelligence, but just the knowledge that you have, the information you have, because really it, it comes down to, do I know everything I think I know? And how do I know that? Right. And the brain likes to move very quickly. It's very efficient. It likes to get to an answer at the expense of knowing everything. And that's, that's kind of the problem. So, so yeah, what do I know? What, what do I know that I know? What do I know that I don't know? And what are the unknown unknowns? Right, right. And then uh, what I teach is what if I'm wrong? Yeah, exactly. You go through, whole, you go through your whole exactly. analysis. And the last question is, all right, what if I'm totally wrong in everything I'm thinking about? Right. What are the, yeah. what, what are the outcomes if I'm totally wrong? Right. And so we both have legal backgrounds too. Right. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned as um, when I was interning in law school in criminal defense, the public defender in um, King County in Seattle, I had a mentor who was very good at pushing me to take the opposing counsel's point of view, which I think a lot of good lawyers do. That's right. In order to prepare their case, you don't assume that you have a strong case and just go in. How am I going to lose? How am I going to lose? And it creates among, you know, lawyers kind of a very risk averse, you know, it kind of makes you a much, a little bit of a curmudgeon, but honestly, it really does. That kind of approach really does ensure that your knowledge for whatever decision you have to make is airtight. That's right. I mean, when I, I was a trial lawyer, a civil trial lawyer for 22 years, and when I was preparing for trial, one of the things that I always asked myself and wrote out my strategy, what happens if something, what happens, what do I do if something happens in the courtroom that I'm completely unprepared for? Had no clue this was coming. Yeah. What do yeah. I do? Right. And then yeah. I would write down all my strategies. And that gave me a lot of confidence because I could walk into the courtroom and know that there really wasn't anything that could happen to me. Yeah. Feeling over my heart attack that, that I couldn't, that I couldn't handle. Exactly. I mean, I have the same experience. I used to um, compete in Muay Thai kickboxing and it would be the same thing as you, as you prepare for, a, for a match or about, um, you really have to think that way. Like you have to know your, you know, who your opponent might be and what their style of fighting might be. And what if they 
did X, Y, or Z. How am I going to prepare for that? And you have to, you know, you train it, train, train, train. So that when you're in the ring, it's just muscle memory where it just comes automatically, but that's all the, the winning comes in the training, the winning comes in the preparation. And I think CEOs kind of feel like the winning comes in the room when they're making the decision. It's not the decision-making that makes or breaks the business. It's the preparation that goes into, and like we talked about a little bit before this podcast, the decision architecture, the choice architecture, that's where it's at. So you just found another touch point between the two of us. I'm the secondary black belt in a northern. China. Are you kidding? We have so much in common. It's nuts. I'm a Tai Chi master and a northern a secondary black belt in a northern Chinese Kung Fu. Yeah. Nice. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, so when you're giving advice to C-level people about how to improve their decision making. So we've got the overconfidence bias we've got to deal with. Always mm-hmm. doubt yourself. Always ask what if I'm wrong. What process? What processes do you find to be most effective at when an executive has to lead a team through a decision-making process? Yeah, so I think that there's um, the. I think I touched on this a little bit. There's this emphasis on the moment of decision-making right. that executives often kind of put a lot of weight on, and I think it's oftentimes when they do that, they kind of go with their gut too much. Um, I'm going to come back to that intuition. It always comes back to that. It's like, okay, I have all this data. And by the way, I don't want to sound like uh, negative anyway, but I do think a lot of C-level executives talk about being data-driven and they don't know what that means, or they talk about relying on evidence when they make their decisions, but they really don't just because they amass a lot of numbers doesn't mean they're making data-driven decisions. I think a lot of them surround themselves with numbers. And at the end, they just go with their instinct. And um, because that there's so much weight on that, like that decision-making moment, but it's the preparation, it's the choice architecture, it's understanding what outcome you want, as opposed to what options you have first. I think that's really a very key thing. What is your outcome rather than, well, what are the things we can do? Once you start brainstorming in the moment, you automatically, the brain is very short-term thinking. We delay the value of long-term rewards. We start muddling in the options and we start to kind of lose sight of that long-term objective. So I like to advise people to start with the objective and then ask, okay, under what conditions could this be possible? Right. And arrive at the options that way, going working backwards, as opposed to trying to start with the option and then figuring out, okay, well, is this going to get to our outcome? I mean, it's much harder that way. Right. Um, I I find that um, you can you choose your goals, look at your outcomes, and then make sure that whatever options or you choose as tactically to, or strategically to get that goal, always disfavor the most favored outcome. Exactly. Exactly. Don't privilege it. Um, Intuition. I'll I'll just start with this and say, I think intuition is the worst way to make a decision unless it's backed up by critical thinking and a whole bunch of other data. But to rely on your gut to make an important decision is not a good thing. What do you I never, I would never do it. I think of, I tell people that your gut, what your gut is telling you is a hypothesis. That's right. That there are many other hypotheses that you could validate or test with data that could be equally or more um, important than what your gut is telling you. The reason why I believe your gut or your instinct isn't really uh, the way to go is because we, we, our gut and our instinct is really just a, a composite of all of our 
past experiences, it's really. Pattern it's pattern recognition. It pattern, it's the availability heuristic plays a huge part too, right. where, where we only, we only seem to think is what, you know, we overweigh the importance of information that we easily remember. And our memories only remember things that are notable. And usually a lot of times it's the really boring, unmemorable data that is much more valuable in driving a decision. But we remember that one, one time we made that choice and we really like, you know, hit it out of the park. And so we carry that memory, but we don't, for, we forget all these other, you know, data points that could be equally important. Yeah. Um, it's just that too many CEOs don't agree with me or you, well, <laughs> unfortunately. So I, I, I teach, you know, I teach my students never, ever re rely on your intuition. It, it's okay to use your intuition. It's an important tool, but all it is is advanced pattern recognition. Yeah. Brains are able to see patterns. They find, that's why we can see, you know, uh, princes are, uh, um, Theories in the clouds, right? Because right. really good at making yeah. patterns out of nothing. But what happens when the pattern looks like X and it's really Y? And it's really Y. Or there's no pattern at all. Or there's no pattern at all. You're yeah. So never, ever, ever just make a gut no. decision. It's the worst thing you can do. And I, mean, I watch lawyers all the time in the mediation come in and say, well, my gut tells me we should do this. And I just shake my head. No, never. I think the only time I would ever use my instinct is if I was like, at the gas station late at night, and some weird guy starts walking up to me and stands too close to me, and then, and then, want to use your instinct. Step back into a fighting stance and see. <laughs> That's happened to me before, and I was like, yeah, you know, that was one of those times when it was probably a good idea. But yeah. what I teach my students is it's okay to use intuition when um, the 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 risk of being wrong is very low. Yeah. Where where it and you need to make a fast decision. You don't have a lot of time, 100%. a lot of cognitive resources on it. And if you make a mistake, it's not going to kill you. Reversibility is a big one. Yeah. If you make a mistake, can you take it? Can you take it back? Can you reverse it? Absolutely. And yes. Um, but you know, it's really interesting is sometimes, and this is also something that I've noticed and I advise is that sometimes things seem like small, meaningless decisions at the very outset, but they have path dependency, right? They have a lock-in power where you might relationships are like this, like you might just go. On a few dates and then you you know just because you've been on a few dates you go on a few more and the next thing you know you're married 10 years down the road and you're like who is this person i'm living with like these little decisions sort of add up and lock you into this outcome right. and i see this happen in businesses all the time where these little seemingly innocuous decisions at the start made with your gut set you on this path and the next thing you know you don't have product market fit and you can't reverse it right i have yeah. made that mistake in my personal life before. yeah <laughs> Have, who has not? I mean, who has not really? Exactly. So when you're working with your companies on consumer decision making, how do you go about looking at consumer? Uh, it strikes me that consumer decision making is going to be really an analysis of emotional decision making. It's it's an analysis of when, when in, uh, decision making is emotional. Okay. When decision making relies on heuristics and when it relies on biases, which biases are at play given different circumstances. And then sometimes consumers do attempt rational decision-making. They're not good at it, but they do consider incentives in some situations. Right. Um, so it's, it's like, it's a combination of all of those. So the, and you know, a lot, a huge part of it, honestly, a huge, 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 huge part of consumer decision-making has to do with indecision and inertia like getting them to break old behavior 
to make a different decision, to overcome action costs and change costs, to overcome that status quo bias and choice deferral and all of that. Like that is a big, because we are creatures of habit. It's much easier to to make the same decision we made every single time because it's a much lower metabolic overload on the brain. Yeah. To have to rethink it, reanalyze, reevaluate. Right. And and anticipated regret is a real thing. People do worry about regretting the decision down the road. And so, you know, loss aversion plays a role. You don't want to do something that's going to make you lose what you have because you value that too much. Um, there, you know, and there's so many other things. So how do you go about modifying the decision-making behavior of consumers? So it depends, it depends on the situation. So I've advised companies on say the design of their, their websites and there are certain, it's a really bad anal- analyzing certain points where you want to reduce friction, but also create friction. Because when you create friction, you are forcing people to snap out of their habitual behavior, which might cause them to bounce off your site right. and really, um, have to think about something and which might increase the chances of them moving through your site. So in those situations, it's when do you want to increase or decrease friction in marketing? It's all about a lot of it is uh, expressive utility might play a lot or large role in marketing decision-making or sorry, marketing decisions. Um, a lot of times consumers make decisions to purchase a product, not because the product is ideal or the best product for them because of what that purchase decision says about their personality, about their character. So marketers can actually tap. It kind of gets manipulative a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to lie, but they can tap into what is the identity? What is the identity that these consumers wish they had? And how can we tap into that? So it really just kind of depends. All of that stuff has a role. All of that stuff comes into play. How do you, I, I want to cycle back to your life story because it just struck me that, I mean, I know you went to law school and was a, you know, I don't know. Did you ever practice law? Hated it. No, oh, I, I hated, I hated, you know what? I blame my dad for making me finish law school. And I also thank him for making me finish law school. I knew right away. I didn't like it. So you, you got your JD and then you went right back and studied, started studying for PhD. I did not go right back. I actually worked in immigration law um, for like a year or two as I was kind of getting, I was rallying to take the bar is what I was doing. I was trying to like, come on, Nika, you can do it. You can be a lawyer. And, um, and I just, I, at the last minute, I couldn't do it. It was just not for me. It was just not for me. And then I, for a couple of years, worked in marketing just because it was a job floated around and then went back to grad school because I realized the only yeah. classes I liked in law school were the sociology classes. Yeah, what's interesting is I, I had never realized that, that in sociology, you can study rational choice theory and decision making. I didn't either, which was remarkable. I mean, really interesting. Yeah, I would like game you know, theory. Really, I would expect all of that to be in economics or something. It, yeah, well, these really brilliant academics looked at the models that economists were using and were and, and said, well, well, shoot, like maybe these models can help explain the, the spouses we choose. Wow. You know, like maybe we're just, um, maybe they can explain why people would engage in high risk protests or high risk political behavior. Um, how do people solve co- coordination problems or collaboration problems in order to engage in political movements? Just a very interesting, different kind of take. It's a very small, narrow field within sociology, mm-hmm. but I thought very powerful and interesting. I was very lucky to work with these guys. Wow. Yeah, that's neat. Well, you made it, you you. It took me. I was a slow learner. It took me 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, 
Actually, but, that's right. I went back to school and got my master's degree in peace and conflict studies in the nice. mid and, and then I left the practice of law a couple of years after that to become a peacemaker. Oh. So, Is that why? Because there's no peace in law? <laughs> very little. <laughs> I <laughs> right. Mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I help more people in a day to these days than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. It was all about and so so let's let's switch this this podcast is called listening with leaders so i could talk mm -hmm. about decision making all day long with you uh, right. but i'm really interested in your take especially coming from the perspective that you do of the importance of leaders listening mm -hmm. in, in their decision making process okay reflect for me about on that um well first of all i think a lot of us listen and we really don't listen I think neuroscience research has showed us that this is the case, that our brains are simulation generating machines. They're predict, they're constantly running predictive models, very sophisticated, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we see or hear, or perceive, or think we're experiencing in the world is just what we're predicting we're going to see. And um, I think recognizing that just because you heard something doesn't mean you heard it or doesn't mean you got it or doesn't mean you really understood it. That there is a, a very high likelihood that your brain is tricking you into seeing or perceiving or hearing somebody say something that either they didn't say or meant a different way or that you put your spin on, that you interpret. Your filters. Mm -hmm. your filter. It doesn't mean that you are flawed. It doesn't mean you're unintelligent. It doesn't mean that you aren't interested or driven or in, in have all the best intentions in the world. You're just human and your brain is going to operate that way. And so when I interact with people and I'm not being you know lazy or you know trying to have fun if i'm really seriously needing to talk to someone i'm always wondering whether i'm hearing them so i will listen and then i will repeat and i will ask again like i try to get at it in two or three different ways sort of triangulate i feel like it's really just about gathering information you're just trying to get data um and that's another thing i think a lot of people do um maybe they could be doing differently or better when they when they listen is that we try to um, gather information or patterns right see connections between things because we want to arrive at what things mean we want to create meaning and then we want to decide and we jump so quickly to decision Problem that solved. we yes that we don't listen with the intent of gathering information and seeing that as a discrete separate exercise distinct from the decision making process Right. And, so what yeah. I see is what you're describing is what I call early problem solving, early decision making for one reason only to soothe my own anxiety. Yes. And so people will rather than listen and reflect. And I think that I think you you touched on one of the one of the ways of listening. So the way I teach this, it's reflective listening and it's for words, meaning and emotions. And each, each of those different types of listening is a different skill. So you can paraphrase for words, use what's known as core meaning, finding core meaning, reflecting core meaning for, for meaning, and ethic labeling for emotions. Right. Um, and usually you're going to combine all, all of those together. But the, but the, but the, key, the, 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 um, the key to all of this is recognizing that, as you said, that your filters are going to get in the way. And right. Unless you get absolute clarity in, in the prison project, prison peace project, we teach our, our incarcerated students to their best friends are Vera and Clara. 
Verify and clarify. <laughs> really nasty neighbor misunderstood. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. We, and they get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I, there are very, very few people who really have strong listening skills. Um, the other thing that I think is a problem is that is that our brains get distracted really easily. So somebody could say something to us and it creates an emotional trigger or it yeah. creates another thought, a, a cascading awake, yeah. associative cascades going on in our mind where memories are triggered, a thought sequences are good. Now we're chasing the rabbit down the rabbit hole and, and we're not hearing anything what the other person is saying. So, so it's really, unless you're trained in this and trained to be a good listener, it's very, very hard to listen. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to say what's remarkable to me is no one teaches you how to listen. The only the only place I ever learned was in tra being trained to be a researcher. There you go. And the one most important thing that I keep in mind when I do my research is that I'm irrelevant in it. And I think that's very hard for people to to want to believe that when they're listening, they don't matter. And you don't. They, the, the person you're listening to matters. That's right. Um, you have you have to, you're not relevant. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not an important person. It doesn't mean you don't have value in the world. It just right. means in that moment, it has nothing to do with you. So leave yourself out of it. Which is why I teach, you're always reflecting from the speakers from a reference. Mm -hmm. So you never use an I statement when you're, when you're reflecting. Right. Always a you statement. Never use an I statement. You only use an I statement when you're talking about yourself. I'm angry. Exactly. Right. Right. Otherwise, it's all you. Oh, you're really frustrated. You're really angry. You're pissed off, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I just find that I find that executives have a hard time with this. Um, mm. And I, I kind of have some hypotheses why, but I don't really know why. I well, mean, I, I, think, I think partly I think it's partly cultural. I think it's partly lack of training. I think it's partly ego. You know. I agree with you all those, yeah. And 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 I think that it's partly since I'm at the top, I know better than everybody else. And, Agreed. And so so it's rather than rather than you know again it goes back to what we were talking about before. What if I'm wrong? Right. Where am I, where am I making my mistakes? Especially trying to listen to somebody who has a value or a point or information that you really disagree with. Right. You know I. I think in my experience, the, you know, quote unquote executives that have, um, that are much better at it, much better at listening, much better than being at being critical in their thinking or having, um, being less likely to have overconfidence bias are those that are newer to the game. Like when I work with startups and founders of startups, which I still do, they are so engaging. They're so interested because they're new and they don't, they are doubt. They are full of doubt. They have imposter syndrome. And that is such a beautiful place to be because they are soaking in everything, not just from me, but from every, everything. Once they get on that path, especially if they're successful, then the fundamental attribution kicks in. Oh, I was successful. Uh, yep. It had to be with about me. I'm so awesome. Nothing I can do is wrong. And then they start. Well, is that, it was that venture capital guy who came in and screwed me up, you know, I mean, right, exactly. If it, if it, yeah, if it didn't go right, it's not my fault. If it went well, it's all me. Yeah. Never mind that I have a team of brilliant people beneath me. Right. Um, but yeah, it's that startup mentality, not the startup business structure. Like that needs to change as the business grows. You can't right. work, you know, you have to have some yeah. systems to come to accommodate larger groups, but like that, I don't really know what I'm doing. I am really kind of struggling. That's gotta be part of your DNA. Exactly. All right. Well, we're at the end of the 30 minutes. I could talk to you for hours, obviously. I know, me too. <laughs> but, but I want to cut it short so that so that we don't bore everybody to yeah, death. Yeah, sure. One last question, a personal question. Sure. What's one thing 
that we wouldn't know about you unless you revealed it to us? Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of, mm, kind of an open book. It could be an interest. It could be a hobby. It yeah. Could be a place you've been. It could be I mean, is it, um, I like heavy metal. I well, listen, there you go. I listen to <laughs> punk rock and I like to listen to heavy metal. Yeah. That makes sense coming out of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a jazz violinist. So there you go. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I'll forgive you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mika. I thank really, you. really enjoyed the conversation. Same, same. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listening with leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.